and we just ask that you reveal yourself to the community, to this church, to the people that don't know you, through our acts of goodness and kindness, but in the realness that you are. I just am so thankful for a faithful group here that is willing to go out and touch the people in our community because they know you, not because they have to, but because they know you. Pray a blessing over Grant this morning as he preaches this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for singing with us this morning. Thank you, worship team. and Thank you for joining us in that worship, some Christmas carols and just some celebrating God. And, and the focus that we've been doing for this whole Advent season is God with us and just really taking a deep look at the character of God because so often we get this, whether you've gone to church your whole life, maybe you're here for the first time, you're checking it out, maybe you have questions. We often get in our minds a sense like God's more of an idea or maybe God's, you know, maybe a bit of a system or there's so many different ways of thinking about God, right? But that's actually not the whole point. It's actually that God is a relational being. God actually wants to know us. And so far we've gone from first, second, third advent that God has a name. He's got a specific identity to him that we can learn about and know about. And the next part too is he has a face, something we can actually recognize. But also with God, it's such an extraordinary creation that we, or not even creation, he's the creator. So like what we know of a face is just the way we recognize each other, but God can look at us. We can't look at him. And then last week we talked about the fact that God has a voice. He actually communicates with us and to us. And so this morning is going to be really fun as we get into that. But before we do all of that, uh, just again, for uh, as a reminder, we don't have a separate kids program, but we do have activity sheets at the back. And kids, if you're hanging out here for the service too, we do have some activity sheets or coloring sheets in the lobby, which are part of our Christmas Eve service. So it's these props and masks for a little story part that's going to be part of the Christmas Eve service. So if you're up for taking on that challenge, you want to kind of get through that, uh, definitely do that. Otherwise, two parents, we have all of our kids' resources on our website online. You can check that stuff out or it's on our YouTube page just to keep these conversations going on at home to dive into this stuff that we weren't able to do here today. Um, and then the next one I want to do is invite up John Elliott, who's hanging out in the booth in the back, for a really exciting announcement and a, a sad announcement, for me at least. No, it's really exciting for all of us. We're, we're super happy. Um, but for those of you who don't know, John has been in, he was, actually, you were my first youth kid when I got here seven years ago. And there's, we did a Nerf night, and I was like, this is going to be awesome. It was like my third week here, and I was like, Nerf night, biggest thing you can do for youth group. Everyone's going to come out. John's the only one who showed up. So we sat and shot like 500 Nerf darts at a wall. For, it was really fun, though. Yeah. I enjoyed it. And we had to clean it up. But since then, it's been great. John has been an intern for me for the last couple summers. He's been like the guy who makes all the things happen from the lights to the sounds to the cameras to the online to any of that stuff. Awesome, multi-talented man. And now you've got an announcement for us, John. What's coming up in your life? Uh, I do. So, um, yeah, I was applying uh, during the fall and I've officially been accepted uh, into a YWAM school um, for... What's YWAM? YWAM is Youth with a Mission. Uh, it's an international organization. Uh, they do missionary-type discipleship schools. Um, 
Yeah, and it's a six-month program um, from January until June. Um, yeah, and I'm super excited. It's right. Yes, yeah. it's in Harpenden in the UK, which is about an hour north of London. Um, yeah, so it's pretty exciting. Yeah, awesome. What else about it? Is there a specific focus on it, or what are you hoping to do in this year coming up with it? Yeah, um, so although the schools differ a little bit, um, the school I'm going to specifically is a uh, English-Spanish fusion school, um, and there'll be a three-month lecture phase of uh, lectures and assignments, team building, local evangelism, uh, and then there's uh, two to three months of outreach, which is pretty much a missions trip where we go somewhere in the world, undisclosed right now, undecided, um, and then do share the gospel and more evangelist work. And yeah, there's um, the one I'm doing, there's um, a slight photography focus that uh, happens during the lecture phase, uh, which is super cool, because that relates to stuff I do here. Yeah, so, huge passion. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. So. Yeah, when John told me, I was like, well, no, because you're working for me this summer, so you can't. <laughs> but I, yeah, we are so excited as a church, and what we just want to do is pray for you, send you off really well, because, uh, I mean, other than we got the next busy Christmas weekend, but it might be one of the last times we see you. So uh, what I do want to just do is invite uh, a couple people up who would like to pray for John, who've been involved in his life, either in uh, leadership in some ways, or just part of him, uh, to Michelle, I'd love to invite you up, and... Yeah, we just want to pray for you, send you off, and uh, just give you a blessing. And, and two, everyone who's here, chat with him, ask him questions, find out how we can support him in this. And yeah, so fantastic. Thanks so much. God, we are so thankful for the work that you are doing in John's life. Um, we, yeah, are just so grateful for who he is and who you've created him to be um, and how he's just loved the church and loved um, this community and given back to you and Lord, we just send him off with um, so much excitement and so much openness of like, okay, God, you're going to do great things through him. And we are so excited and we are, we are with him and we are supporting you, John. And, um, God, yeah, again, just thank you for who he is and how he's journeyed with us over the last number of years and that we've gotten to see him grow and, um, and make this really great decision and really amazing um, step out of faith. And we, we pray for his mission work and where that is and what that looks like, God, that you'd prepare him and that you would um, just put this really exciting fire and passion into him for wherever you send him. Uh, God, we just thank you. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you so much for, for John, for the role model and for the, the servant he has been in our church, God. God, we pray your hand of blessing on this next chapter in his life, this adventure that he is going on, God. God, we know that we can know the, the rough plans and ideas, but we have no idea what you have in store for him, for the adventures he's going to go on, the things he's going to learn, and the things that you have to show him. We pray for your hand of blessing and safety as he goes and travels halfway around the world and learns more about you. God, we thank you for him.
Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for this opportunity, this path that you've opened up for John and that you've given him a willing heart to accept it and to step out in faith. And, you know, having traveled a similar path myself, I, I know some of the exciting adventures and challenges ahead for him. And I just pray that you would just keep your hand a blessing on him, Lord. Keep him safe, keep him healthy, and um, help him to just really create great bonds with the people he will meet and um, the most important bond of all with you, Lord God. And we just thank you in the way that you're leading him at this point in his life and that it would just continue to go on in Jesus' name. God, we thank you for John. He is a talented man and you are going to do amazing things in him. We ask all these things in your name. Amen. Okay, and with that, uh, John opens up about seven volunteer positions for Sunday morning services, so the sign-up list is wide open. Okay, who here is a fellow sci-fi nerd with me? Like, four hands, so the rest of you are not going to enjoy this first analogy. Okay, but in 1950, a man named Alan Turing created a test. He's a mathematician, and he created this test that he theorized would help us understand the, the difference between, uh, or at least put to the test, a synthetic intelligence. Essentially, if a computer could trick somebody that they were a person. And, and now the interesting thing about this, and it works by have somebody having a conversation with both a machine or a set of data and a person, and trying to see, like, can you discern the difference between these two? And, uh, it, that was 1950, right? So I don't know what generation in iPhones, like Siri came in, but I don't think computers were too advanced in 1950. It's actually quite an incredible theory that this person had before there was really any technology. But we do have artificial intelligence and incredible things nowadays, programs. I mean, some of them are so seamless, you have no idea. I've seen five-year-olds talk with Alexa in their houses like it's just a natural conversation. Tell me about this, play my music, and uh, how, much, how can I play Fortnite without my parents knowing, right? And Alexa <laughs> helps them understand that. It's, it's a little freaky. Some of them aren't so intelligent, right? Like when you get a phone call from some mobile provider that you actually aren't even really part of, and they're telling you about a promotional offer, and all you have to do is give them your social insurance number and your parents' like place of birth and all that, and you're like, yeah, sure, probably not. Um, but there are even more advanced ones that are incredible. Like there's been uh, IBM created a supercomputer, Deep Blue, that mastered chess and has been completely undefeated by anybody and everybody. And then Watson, who went on the Jeopardy game show and crushed it at that. And so incredible advancements, yet even at this point where we're at with technology, this Turing test created by Alan Turing has been modified and adapted. And at the most so far, these machines have only been able to convince less than 30% of judges in a very limited kind of conversation. And that actually drops down to zero when it becomes a little bit more expanded, when it's a longer time of interaction uh, without any specific bounds. Because there's something missing, right? Right now, we do have computers that can think faster than us. They have more information, more data. They're actually very rational. They can learn stuff on their own. It's actually freaky, the things. Some of the devotional posts you might be reading online are created by AIs right now, along with news articles and stuff. It's, it's wild. But 
there's something that's always missing when it comes to trying to connect with an intelligence because we're not necessarily interested as humans in just knowledge of stuff. We're actually always looking for and what judges would find when they would try this Turing test in an expanded kind of method is they wouldn't feel cared for by the machine. They wouldn't feel like it had any sort of compassion. Now, it could actually synthesize emotions, but they didn't feel like it cared for them. It's because it was missing a heart. And it's okay, neat. Maybe the sci-fi stuff is over, right? You're like, okay, cool little data. Maybe you'll go home and Google it, the Turing test. It's kind of neat. Watch, uh, there's a few movies. I can't even, they're out of my mind right now. Some wild movies about that whole thing. But anyways, what, what's interesting is we often think about God more like a machine than we think about him like a person. Not a person like you and me, but like somebody we could actually relate to. We, we try to think of God as like a system of right and wrong. We try to put God into a box of this is what he is, this is what he isn't. You know, we start creating loops and circles around stuff. Can God make a rock so big he could lift it or couldn't lift it, right? And try to trap it. And we try to think of God like a computer. And what's even weirder is is we start getting ourselves into trying to put God into a box. He fits into this church building or into these traditions exclusively. This is the only way to understand and get and anything like that. We, we try to really know it. And we miss the point that God has a name who we can call and a face that we can long to see and a voice to hear. And then this morning we're talking about a heart that cares for and loves us. It's essential to know this, that God has a heart. And not a heart like you and I have, not like a muscle pumping blood. A heart like, you know, so a heart like this. Um, I'm not the most warm and cuddly person. It don't everyone correct me at once, okay? <laughs> I get it, I feel it. I, sure, okay, so that's a true fact. Okay, but then a year ago, just over a year ago, had a, had a daughter, love it, love her so much. and. I would make an absolute fool of myself rolling around on the ground for her because she just melts me, right? And I just love hanging out with her. I just love doing whatever. Whatever can get a giggle is so fun, right? Because she melts my heart. My heart is just after her. And, and so there's just a deeper part of me. Uh, author Dane Orland put it this way, the heart represents the deepest center of our character. What's behind the surface actions? What is the motivation of our life's purpose? So God has a heart like that, a heart like the motivation to enter into our world and sacrifice yourself on the cross for the sake of being closer to us in a relationship. That's the kind of heart that God has. So let's talk about this a little bit more. Let's talk about the heart of God. And we're going to do that by diving into a very Christmassy story this morning, a very Christmassy book of the Bible. If you've got your Bibles with you or if you've got the app, we're going to be diving into Jonah. <laughs> story about the Christmas fish. Okay, if, if, if you're new to this, it's in the Old Testament of the Bible. Uh, if you're scrolling through it, just search it up, J-O-N-A-H. Uh, and it is one of the prophet books, which is a grouping of books in the Old Testament, which were written during a history of God's people, the Israelites, when God would work through specific individuals called prophets. And it was when God was either instructing uh, the Israelite people through these prophets, or he's trying to give them a better way to relate to or understand him or protect and defend them from oppressing nations around, or sometimes bring a very critical message to some of the nations around Israel. 
So that was what this is. And Jonah was a prophet who God was sending to a place called Nineveh. Just to give you some context, he is bringing a message of destruction to this place, Nineveh. And here's why. So Nineveh was a nasty place. It was a crazy nasty place. Specifically to the Israelites, Nineveh was a nation that had destroyed and enslaved significant parts of the Israelite people. And not only that, they were the stuff of legends. Uh, a few decades ago, archaeologists dug up a bunch of writings and records of the Ninevite kings. And so, quote, so children, plug your ears for this. Uh, piles of heads at their enemies' gates or burning down villages in the night so nobody could leave. They would chain up and humiliate conquered kings and keep them as pets beside the throne. To put it short and to quote another author, this is not the kind of place you want to be sent off to plant a church. <laughs> and that's what God said. He's like, all right, Jonah, you're going there. So we're just going to kind of go through this a little bit. We're going to just go right from the beginning, Jonah 1, 1 to 3. I'm just going to read it through here. If you've got your Bibles, if not, uh, listen along. So Jonah 1, 1 to 3. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed to Tarshish. Okay, so fair response, right? Jonah, I get it. It's like if somebody was, you grow up in mission, actually it's almost like I grew up in Surrey and they'd be like, hey, you should go to mission to plant a church. I'd be like, no, no, I'm going to Vancouver. But I guess it kind of works the other way too. If you're in mission, it'd be like saying, go to Hope and plant a church. No, not that bad, way worse. Interesting though, Jonah ran away, not from Nineveh, although he headed as far the other direction. Tarshish was like distinct, as far west in the ancient world as was the known world, Nineveh would have kind of been like where Iraq is, kind of modern day now. I'm trying to get as far away, but Jonah was running away from God, from Yahweh, talked about a few weeks ago. Talking, running away from God, why? So let's get into the heart of the story. We're gonna skip ahead a little bit here um, because so what happens, Jonah runs away, gets on a boat, uh, heads across the sea, big storm comes up. Jonah knows it's because God's pretty upset with him. God's pretty upset with Jonah for running away. Jumps off the boat, storm comes down, big fish eats Jonah. So Jonah starts singing a song inside of the fish, right? That's the typical response you do when you're drowning in the ocean. Obviously, he's a bad singer because a fish vomits him up on the shore right near Nineveh. And now we're diving back in. So now we're skipping ahead. Jonah chapter 3, round verse 4. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city of Nineveh, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God, a fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth, a way of saying, we're sorry, we're changing everything, everything about us was wrong, God, we are surrendering to you. Even the king ordered a, a decree that everyone must repent, Jonah 3, 7 to 9, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything, do not let them eat or drink, but the people and the animals be covered in sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Again, this is the king with legends written about how violent they were, how conquering they were. They were literally the terrorists of the ancient world. And then listen to this line. Who, who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger and we won't perish. And so what happened? God's like, nah, you're way too bad. Destroyed them all anyways. Verse 10, when God saw what they did, 
and how they turned from their evil, way, evil ways, he relented. And he did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened them with. Pretty cool story, right? Like that's what we, we, we sometimes talk about in Sunday school and in, in the VeggieTales stuff. And, and they said, we're sorry. And God said, okay, I get that because of the compassion. And, and like the king was even ordering, God might actually give us a chance here. We are so scared, but there's maybe a chance. How did Jonah respond? God, you're amazing. What an incredible thing to do. I can't believe it. Read this. Jonah chapter four, verse two. Jonah prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord? When I was still at home, this is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. A God who relents from sending calamity. And now here's how Jonah finishes by pouting. Now, Lord, take away my life. It is better for me to die than live in a world where the Ninevites get to continue living. This is the heart of what we're talking about today. Does that, does that trigger anything where you're remembering this from a few weeks ago? If you joined us on First Advent, Jonah says, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God. The words coming straight out of this passage in Exodus chapter 34, which is the most quoted passage in the Bible by the Bible over and over again because it is God's own self-disclosure of who he is, what his character is like, what his heart is like, that he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and rich in love. Jonah knew this. He knew God, and he, he gets it. He, he, he says that so Jonah doesn't want to even give the Ninevites a chance because he knows there's a chance that God actually is a little bit more flexible than rational. God actually cares about people when they turn back towards him, when they relent, when they listen to his decrees. And Jonah doesn't really want that. It sounds kind of bizarre, right? But I think we can relate to that actually hugely, right? We love to hear about God's love and compassion and grace when it's for us because we're not that bad. But we don't really like knowing that God is blessing people who cut us off or who don't get winter tires so they stall on coming up the cedar connector and create a huge backlog of cars. We don't like knowing that God blesses our enemies, that God has compassion on terrorists. We don't like the fact that God also loves the opposite team in the NHL that we're not cheering for. But that's the thing. We often have this mindset, again, where we try to control God and put God into a box and say, God's on our side because I got it figured out. And then here's, the, here's a bit of a truth this morning for you to know is that God is not on your side or their side. God is on God's own side, being true to his character. He's, he is a God with a heart who is gracious and compassionate, so he gets to choose who he has grace and compassion on. And one verse even says, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll forgive who I forgive. And we try to systematize God and say, this is, what, this is what is forgivable and this isn't forgivable. We try to give our own terms to it. But God stays true to his character. So that's kind of the story just to set up and bring us into the heart of who God is, who Yahweh of the Old Testament is, gracious and compassionate, even a nation like Nineveh that everyone around them knew there's no way they should stand a chance and God blesses them anyways and relents and, and lets them off the hook for the moment because they repented. What does this have to do about Christmas? Why is this important? So what we're going to do is actually zoom now ahead, if you've got your Bibles again, we're zooming ahead into the New Testament, uh, into Matthew chapter 11. 
So in the New Testament, there are four books called the Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they're all accounts of the life of Jesus. The birth of Jesus is what we're celebrating for Christmas. It's our big focal point, Jesus coming into the world. And in all of the Gospels, there's 89 chapters of the Gospel books, but there is one verse where Jesus directly refers to his heart, where we actually get a direct reference to the heart of God. So that's Matthew chapter 11, verse 29. And I'm going to read the verses right around it here too. So starting in verse 28, Matthew 11, 28, Jesus, words from Jesus' mouth. He says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. Just repeat that one line. I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Gentle and humble in heart. This is, of all the verses in the Bible and all the different descriptions, we hear about Jesus' teaching and his wisdom, his interactions, his miracles. And he has one line where he says directly what his heart is like, what the deep center part of his character is like. And he chooses gentle and humble. Some translations you might have in your Bible says lowly. And it's interesting because he doesn't use dignified and majestic or righteous and demanding. He doesn't even use friendly and generous in heart. Even though these could all be true things about Jesus, he uses gentle and humble. And, and just to clarify, humble here doesn't mean like, it's not humble like, you know, that weakness attribute, like you're being humbled when you're being way too obnoxious, way too self-confident, you get put in your place. And it's not humble like, you know, especially as Mennonites, especially as Canadian Mennonites, we have that like forced humility, right? Where you just, aren't able to accept a compliment or help or anything. You're just like, no, no, please. There's no way I could accept that. I'm nothing. You don't need to do that for me. Like, we do that a lot, right? It's not humble like that. Humble here is a characteristic of somebody, and here's the definition I found that works perfectly biblically, who has no need to demand or show off their authority and magnitude. There's no need to prove anything to anyone because there are no threats. This humility comes from a place of having utter certainty and completeness in your own character that you have no need to lord over any other people to gain any validation. The result is a humility that makes you an approachable person, an approachable soul. And here's what's amazing is because I, I love it. It's, it's, you know, you think, why didn't Jesus use the words um, gracious and compassionate. Well, because those are actually the most common characteristics that other people observe about Jesus. Have compassion on me. All the people who are begging for Jesus' work in their life, they said, Lord, have compassion on me. Have grace in my life. Show me your grace and mercy. So Jesus didn't need that. Instead, he said, what am I like? And he said, gentle and hum humble. Because I think gentleness and humility are the necessary characteristics to express grace, grace and compassion. Right, you can't be aggressively compassionate. You can't throw it on somebody, I love you. You're amazing, I'm sorry this happened to you. Right? You can't force grace into somebody's life. It has to be accepted and it has to be offered and, and just presented gently and humbly. And you, can, you can't be cocky about forgiveness. You can't say, I, I forgive you because I'm amazing doesn't quite work, right? It doesn't really express much. It's pretty sarcastic. So, so Jesus' self-description of his and God's heart is gentle and humble. And, and that's his way of saying, this is how 
I express compassion towards people who will receive it, how I show approachableness to me. And, and so here's the thing. I think when, when we think about the birth story of Jesus, when we think about the manger, what more appropriate way is there for God, gracious and compassionate, God slow to anger, rich in love, to enter into our world than, than like this, to be born to a faithful young couple who's been outcasted by their families and in the outback barn from an inn in the cold, surrounded by animals, visited by strangers, okay, and then maybe a young boy playing drums, maybe, who knows, it's folklore, not true, actually, didn't happen, but what could be a more humble entrance into the world? What could be more gentle than a baby being brought into the world? And here's the reason for it, because the whole reason for this, it, there was an ultimate plan for Jesus coming into the world. It was salvation from sins. It was the conquering of death. But there was a bigger plan in place that God didn't want to just get stuff done. That would be the computer, right? Would just get stuff finished. That's like kind of my impulse. Typically, whenever there's, a, whenever there's an issue, especially when there's like an interpersonal problem, I'll go home and vent to my wife and say, this, it's so ridiculous. This is all that has to happen. And this person just needs to stop talking and this person just needs to say sorry and that would happen. And then my wife will say something a little bit more gracious, like, okay, actually, but their feelings are hurt and they are really missing something in their life. So maybe like love them and give them a chance. <laughs> be gentle, be a bit humble. So rather than just getting the thing done, God actually comes into the world as a baby because he has a bigger goal, and that is actually to be relational. And so then we see in the life of Jesus this person who we almost universally relate to and like, whether you are a follower of Jesus or not, people will quote Jesus over and over because his heart seems so compatible with ours. And it's like almost the creator of our hearts knows actually how to relate to our hearts better than any of us could, right? And so he comes into the world and lives 30 years and grows up like a baby, grows up from a baby all the way into adulthood for the sake of relationship with us, for the sake of actually connecting with us. So big cool ideas. What does this actually mean for you and me? There's three things to that. There's three things that I want to leave you with this morning. Uh, the first one is God is gracious and compassionate regardless of what you think. Regardless of what you think is right. We're all for ideas like turn the other cheek, right, and peace and loving your enemy in theory. But in practice, people are pretty frustrating at times, aren't they? People bother you and me. I get bothered regularly, actually. And some people hurt us, actually, intentionally. Some people are just mean. And then we think there's no way that God should be gracious and compassionate to, the, to them. You know what's actually one of the worst things that almost it feels like it happens? When somebody wrongs you, when somebody intentionally hurts you, and this has happened in my life, where, where somebody is in, a friend has intentionally hurt me and betrayed me, right? And this is when I was a teenager, right? So it involved a girl, of course, stuff like that. And they, they just came in and ruined everything. And then, you know what's worse? Is when their life starts going really well afterwards, and you get more bitter, don't you? Because they deserve something like karma. But then we realize karma doesn't actually exist and that's not the function and flow of the universe. What is present in the function and the flow of the universe is God who has grace and compassion. See, what we often actually do is think stuff needs to be fair. But God sets a standard of things actually need to be run by grace in the world. So, Ask yourself this, where have you failed to recognize God's heart at work in the world? 
Maybe specifically there's a broken relationship you've had, there's a spat with a family member or a feud that's gone on, somebody has been hurtful, and then you've seen God at work in their life, but you've refused to see it because you want to see them hurt the way you felt hurt too. And what you actually need to remember too is the fact that you're trying to act as a judge when the fact that you hurt people as well, and you're mean to people sometimes and God has blessed you. I know I've been mean before. I know I have intentionally hurt people. I know I have hurt my wife before, and God still blesses me, and God still loves me, and God offers me grace too. So we just need to accept that fact that it's on God's terms, not ours, and that's how he operates in the world. The second part is the fact that we need to start learning how to model our hearts after God's heart. Take the character and example of God's heart being gentle and humble. And really, it, it gets as simple as that old school WWJD bracelet. What would Jesus do? That's what Jesus' life was about, was showing us what living out God's heart looks like. Walking on earth, being compassionate, doing the things that seem radically silly, not rational, actually reaching out to people who would be your enemies, people who will not be your political and academic and professional allies, but people who actually will get you ostracized, people who would make you in the culture Jesus lived in unclean. And Jesus said, no, no, I love them too. We actually need to make a policy in our life, and, and it's interesting, I've seen some churches do this, and I kind of love it, is a policy that actually says we're not a, as a person, my heart, I'm not going to actually operate by what's fair. You get this, you get this, you did this, you deserve that. But actually, a policy in your life modeled after God's heart, which operates on grace. Because that's how Jesus operated, right? Jesus would offer to somebody who said, okay, Jesus, what does it take to follow you? And he said, give up everything you have, everything you own, everything you want, and follow me. But then to somebody else who's in a more broken place, they said, Jesus, what would it take to follow you? And he says, just believe me, man. That's it. It seems unfair, but they're both offers of grace. And lastly, respond to God's heart. So maybe you're here this morning, you're listening to this message, or maybe you're checking out online and listening to this sometime later. Uh, you stayed safe at home, which is fantastic. And you're thinking, okay, God has a heart. He is gracious. He is compassionate. He is forgiving. He is gentle. He is humble. But you have no idea what I've done. You have no idea what I'm still doing and what I think about and what I'm addicted to and the stuff that I look at regularly. You have no idea about the stuff I keep under the covers. There's no way God could be part of my life. God's done with me because I have wanted nothing to do with God up until this point. So here's the message this morning is that you cannot out-sin God's grace. I don't know all of your lives personally here, but I guarantee none of you are making mountains of heads at your enemy's gates. None of you have chained up somebody like a Ninevite king has. But the good news is none of us are perfect, and that's kind of the measure we're either sinners or we're perfect, and none of us are there. So God offers that, and the good news is that responding to God's heart means celebrating with all your might what we're going to be celebrating in a week, that a baby was born in a manger to grow up and live a perfect life and take the weight of that sin on the cross for all of us. And so God enters into our world so that we can enter into his world. It's just a small preview of what we're going to be celebrating passionately for Christmas Eve next evening. But what that means is if you have that relationship with God, fantastic. Or if you're here this morning, you're not certain 
about that relationship you've got with God, I want to invite you to dive back into that, to start that up again. And what that can look like is a prayer. What that can look like is a response to God's heart. And so here's how it can even look too this morning. We're going to pray. I would love for you to find me after the service, and I'd love to help you understand what that actually looks like a little bit more. Maybe you're here, and God's just been an idea in your life that there's a God or a sense of something out there, something that helps right and wrong balance out. But I want to tell you that there is a specific named person of God who you can know and have a relationship with. So that's what this morning is all about. And you know what? I'm going to be staying around here around the fire pit, and I would just love to pray with you for that. But I invite everyone here to join me in prayer just as we end the service off. We're going to enjoy some baked goodies after the service too, so stick around, get some warm drinks, get some cookies. But God, thank you so much that you reveal to us over and over and over again, God, not this complicated systems of trying to figure out every little bit about the universe that's going on. It's so big, God, so thank you for taking care of that. But instead... God, you're revealing to us that you are knowable, you are relatable. God, that you are dynamic and you blow our minds constantly with things that don't make sense to us, but sometimes a heart and a relationship doesn't make sense. God, thank you that you are a God of love, a God of grace and compassion. And God, I just pray that for anyone here who who doesn't feel or doesn't have the certainty that they have a relationship with you, they are stirred and want that desire, God. They want to have that certainty that they know you, God, that they are covered by that love and that grace. God, I just pray for anybody here who feels like they're way too distant, that you just work and soft in their heart, God, that you gently approach us, humbly approach us, and show us how loving you are and that you're just desperate to come to know us so that we can know you. God, I pray that you bless us this morning. Give us safety as we drive home, God, for everyone who stayed home, continue keeping them safe and warm during this blizzard. God, and I just pray that you also bless us through this week as we prepare for celebrating the birth of your son, Jesus, next week at Christmas. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. So thank you, everyone. Again, uh, baked goodies out in the lobby. Next week, we've got our Christmas Eve service. That's on Saturday at 6 p.m., Christmas Day, the 25th, we have a church service. It's Sunday, so that's 10 a.m. here. There will be cake. And New Year's Day, we are doing an online service. There will be a TV, a watch party happening here for the online service. Otherwise, that's a stay-home day, stay warm, and and just have a great morning with your families, also at 10 a.m. But other than that, have a great week. We'll see you on Christmas Eve.